0: In 2016, Elizabeth Turner saw a need to increase access to genetic counseling. This was the inspiration for her to start advanced telegenetic counseling. Now during a pandemic, there has never been a better time to book a telehealth genetic counseling consult. Cancer genetics is one of the many areas that ATGC specializes in. Their team of genetic counselors are specifically trained to help understand, interpret, and navigate complex genomic information. All genomes have a story to tell. If you're ready to learn yours, head over to at-gc.com to book your appointment with a genetic counselor today. I receive a lot of emails from listeners interested in genetic careers, and I love connecting and providing resources. One of those is Keck Graduate Institute's genetics programs in Southern California. KGI offers a master's degree in genetic counseling, as many of you know, but for those of you looking for something slightly different, KGI also has a first of its kind graduate program in genomic data analytics. This two year master's program gives students the opportunity to work side by side with applied life scientists and future genetic counselors while gaining hands on experience with technology and information that are revolutionizing the future of medicine. Learn more about the program by visiting kgi.edu slash DNA Today. Again, that's kgi.edu slash DNA Today.
1: How is it that we find ourselves surrounded by such complexity, such elegance?
0: The genes of you and me, the genes of you, and me. they're all made of DNA. We're all made of the same chemical DNA. DNA.
1: We're all made of DNA. DNA. Made
0: of Hello, you're listening to DNA Today, a genetics podcast and radio show. I'm your host, Kira Janine. On this show we explore genetics impact on our health through conversations with leaders in genetics. These are experts like genetic counselors, researchers, doctors and patient advocates. My guest today is Dr. Kat Arney, a fellow genetics podcaster. She is an award-winning science writer, author, presenter, broadcaster and public speaker. Her voice will probably be familiar to you as she has appeared on radio and TV around the world including BBC Radio 4 the Naked Scientists, and Naked Genetics podcast, and more recently as the host of the Genetics Unzipped podcast. She's written for outlets including the Times Educational Supplement, BBC Science Focus, The Daily Mail, Wired, BBC Online, The Guardian, and New Scientists. Dr. Arnie has authored three popular science books, Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work, How to Code a Human, and her new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer Evolution, and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal, which we're gonna discuss in this episode. Oh, and stick around to the end to find out how to enter to win your own copy of Rebel Cell. Before we bring Dr. Kat on the show, I wanted to thank all of you listeners again for your DNA Today nominations and votes that led us to the Best 2020 Science and Medicine Podcast Award. I want to continue this momentum by getting listed on Podcast Magazine's Hot 50 list. All you have to do is go to podcastmagazine.com/hot50 and type in DNA Today, hosted by myself, Kira Denine. Then just click cast my vote. We would so appreciate it. And to make it easier, there's a link in the show notes to today's episode, as well as the blog post on dnapodcast.com. We're also going to blast it out on social media. We need all the votes we can get since we are competing against a ton of other podcasts from virtually every other category. This is a compilation of the Hot 50 podcasts of every category. So we'd really appreciate your votes. Again, that's podcastmagazine.com hot50. Thank you so much, Cap, for coming on the show. I'm really excited to dive into all this. And after hearing you for years on Naked Genetics, it's so exciting to have you on the show here. Well, thank you. It's nice to hear your voice as well, sort of uh, direct to my ears and talking to me. Yes, it is different from I'm always listening to you. Now you're talking back. So it's a little bit different here. (laughs) It's a dream. It is. Yeah, definitely. And I really enjoyed your book Rebel Cell. It was so interesting that you explore cancer from an evolutionary lens. What makes this evolutionary perspective more accurate method to understanding cancer development than some of the more traditional ways of understanding it? So there's kind of two different angles on that. I think one of the
1: conventional ways of understanding has more been the public idea that perhaps cancer is a very new disease it's a modern disease brought upon us by our modern western lifestyles Uh, it's a human disease and it's maybe something that's visited on us because maybe something we've done wrong so that's definitely an idea i want to challenge because i go into great detail in the book you know how old cancer is as a disease how many different species across the tree of life could be affected by it this is not ancient biological process that, that happens to our bodies, but also the kind of, I want to challenge in terms of how we think about treating cancer and think about what it is, that this idea that it's just something that starts from a mutated cell growing out of control, and then we just need to find the, the magic bullets, the drugs that we fire at it, that will make it go away. And, you know, to a certain extent, that is true. But actually, that's not really helping us get really far down the road of, of understanding why does cancer start? Where does it come from? And then like how do we treat advanced cancer more effectively? We've become really sort of reductionist about the, the genetics, precision medicine idea that if we could just find all the mutations in cancer, we'll really understand it and be able to treat it. And we sort of ignored all the, the evolutionary context of that a cancer is an evolving system within a complex system of the body and that also that there's more to it than just the cells. You know, it's interacting with its environment. There's an ecology there. So taking this sort of wider, broader, more grandiose view, I think provides a lot of enlightenment about helping people to understand what cancer really is and then a more realistic view of then, okay, so what do we actually do about it?
0: And there's an interesting idea presented in the book where you talk about the origins of cancer all the way back to when multicellular life was beginning to evolve. Could you share with us what we know about so far back of this origin of cancer and and what we've been able to figure out from all the way back then? So this really stunned me when I started researching into the book, because I knew
1: that cancer wasn't just a human disease. You know, my, my first dog, absolutely much beloved Welsh Springer Spaniel, died of cancer. You know, I've always known that it's not just human disease. But starting to really dig into it and seeing the extent of across all branches of the tree of life that is affected by cancer. There's a couple of really notable and very weird exceptions. Uh, comb jellyfish. No extant cases of cancer reported, and also sponges, really weirdly resistant, but pretty much everything else can get cancer. And there's a book, um, it's edited by a researcher called Beata Uchvari, and there's like, you know, 20 pages of tiny type listing all the different species where cancer has been found, everything from like fish to birds, to bats, to to whales, to wombats, everything. And so you realize that this is this goes deep. And What really blew my mind back in 2014, when a paper came out um, from um, Thomas Domoschek Losho and his colleagues, showing that they'd found a tumour in a tiny hydra. I don't know if you know anything about hydras, but they're basically these tiny animals that live in the water, and they're basically a tube with tentacles. They're millimetres long, they're tiny, and completely spontaneously, so there wasn't anything weird they'd done to these hydra, but they found a spontaneous tumour In this organism that is basically a tube with three different types of cells so that tells you like if something as simple as that all the way up to something as as complex as a human or an elephant or a shark yeah sharks do get cancer you know can get cancer this is just a this is just biology and then i started to really get interested into well why and you realize that basically if you're going to be multicellular cancer is the price of multicellularity. It's it's the price of multicellular life. Because once you have cells that live in a community, a multicellular organism, once they're doing their jobs, only multiplying when they should, they're dying when they're meant to, they're not taking too many resources. They kind of made this, this social contract to be part of a multicellular organism. There will always be cheats that emerge in that system and become cancer cells and cheats emerge in all systems in all groups of organisms in human societies in animal societies in cellular societies and like this is kind of almost inevitable and it's it's deeply natural so that was that really blew my mind realizing like that the intimate origins of cancer are basically tied
0: into the origins
1: of of multicellular life
0: and looking at such simple life forms that can develop cancer like as you were saying just being such a surprising finding are we seeing correlations between species cancer development that are more closely related to one another in terms of evolution is there any correlations there or does it seem like as you said most species are getting cancer
1: so most species can get cancer but the rate at which they get cancer does differ and we have this idea like maybe humans are uniquely, exquisitely more prone to cancer, but actually in the grand scheme of things, kind of in the middle. Because the other things to factor in are the evolutionary trajectory of your species. So you get animals that basically live fast and die young. They, they live for a short time. They reproduce a lot. Their individual lifespan is very short. They are at high, high risk of developing tumours. So things like rodents, short-lived rodents will spontaneously develop a lot of cancers. They don't, they haven't evolved very protective mechanisms. On the other end of the scale, you consider some of the the massive long-lived organisms like, like whales and like elephants, right? If you think about it kind of logically, you'd think, okay, an elephant has loads and loads and loads of cells, it lives for a very long time. You would expect an elephant to be riddled with cancer because you've got a lot of cells proliferating, lots of chances for cells to go wrong and out of control. But actually, elephants are remarkably cancer-proof. They have evolved mechanisms that enable them to live so long. And it's come at a cost of things like potentially, you know, wound healing and uh, all these kind of things. But it's all a trade-off between your, your lifestyle as a species, your evolution, like how your cells and your tissues behave, in order to control the innate tendency of cells to like, you know, wanna want to buck the system. Um, so I think that that's fascinating and humans are kind of in between. There are things that we do in our lives and there are things in the modern world that do increase the risk of cancer and we absolutely know that. But our sort of basal cancer rate is,
0: is kind of somewhere in the middle uh, in in the grand sort of tree of life. And looking at humans specifically, scientists are sometimes able to sequence DNA from fossilized skeletons. And so this give insights on the evolution of cancer in terms of over time in humans, because if we can go back in time almost and look at how cancer was back then compared to now, I mean, have we made any insights from being able to look at the DNA from fossilized skeletons?
1: I think this is such an interesting area. And there is this conception that cancer in the ancient world was very 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 rare and that's because there aren't that many ancient human remains that turn up with cancer and I kind of want to like poke at that a bit because we don't dig up perfectly time matched series of bodies you know you kind of when you're coming to to doing ancient archaeology you kind of you get what you get and there are lots of reasons why cancer might not be so represented in ancient humans. But I think almost the fact that we find it at all, and we can find some examples of, for example, uh, very rare childhood tumors in ancient remains, mummified remains, fossilized remains, does tell us that if cancer maybe wasn't as common as it is now, it was certainly there. And really, we have no idea how common. Uh, and also, of course, that in, in the olden times, there were many, many more things that could kill you before you got to an age. Where cancer started to become a problem. Because again, going back to our evolutionary trajectories of species, um, humans, we tend to have a significant increase in our risk of getting cancer through our sort of late 50s and 60s, but a remarkably low risk in young life and middle age. So there is something very protective about our human bodies up until that point. And also, you know, when you're looking at ancient specimens. The likelihood that you're going to find a, a statistically significant population of people over the age of 60 represented there. Ageing skeletons is very, very hard. Um, determining like whether they did die of cancer and if so, what sort is also very, very hard. There's not representative populations. But I, I think there are some interesting questions. And it, it certainly seems like the more people are looking for cancers in ancient human remains and ancient animal remains, Um, the more they're finding. And and just this week, too late for the book, but (laughs) just this week, um, we're we're talking in August, there was the announcement that they found a 77 million year old dinosaur fossil with an osteosarcoma tumour. So, you know, this stuff is old. And and I think the fact that we find any of it is really suggestive
0: that it was, if not massively prevalent, reasonably prevalent in the past. Oh, that's an exciting finding and that we're seeing again in in different species, but also from so long ago. And obviously, as you said, there's a lot of limitations when it comes to getting DNA and and looking at it with skeletons because of just how old it is and what are you finding. But as you said, just being able to say, oh, it looks like this person did have cancer and so long ago, that is valuable in itself. And I'm, I'm interested to explore if there's a relationship between the genes that are correlated with cancer, and many of them we know of in the field, and how long those genes have existed in terms of, are these genes being highly conserved across species? Are these cancer genes seen throughout the animal kingdom? Or are we seeing more like there's human cancer genes and then there's other genes in other species?
1: So the basic, what we would consider to be cancer genes are the kind of the the drivers of life so they're the genes that are involved in cellular proliferation they're the genes that are involved in like overriding cell death they're genes that are involved in metastasis moving cells around and so i think those are the same across all species because ultimately you know we all came from one cell with the same fundamental set of mechanisms that make cells multiply You know, the cell cycle is incredibly conserved, all the way down to yeast, and there are similarities to bacteria and archaea and all these kind of things. And these are the genes that we find dysregulated in cancer. What's interesting is when you start to tie this into the ideas of multicellularity, because there's some really interesting work from uh, Peter Good and his team in Australia, Peter Mack Cancer Centre in Australia, that when they start analysing tumours and looking at the the evolutionary age of the genes that are dysregulated so they find that a lot of cancers are upregulating kind of really ancient old genes these are ones that are associated with almost unicellular processes like just proliferate at all cost move around take what you need from the environment and the genes that are downregulated are the genes that are associated with multicellular life so things like um Sticking cells together, communication between cells, differentiation. And there are some people who've said, oh, this is because cancer cells are, are trying to get back to some more primitive way of life. It's like, well, but probably not, but they're certainly tapping in to the genetic processes that are there in all human cells. I mean, we all start with one single cell. You've got to make a lot of cells. You've got to differentiate them. You've got to move them around. All these processes are there. They're there in unicellular cells that use them for different ideas. They're there in, in all species of life, have variations of these genes. And so cancers kind of tap in to the more ancient genes, the cell cycle genes, the things that really make you proliferate. And they they start to ignore the genes that control that society and how you interact with the cells around you and your environment around you. So, you know, the, the original book, uh, the original name for my book was um, "Was selfish monsters. So, you know, these kind of selfish, cheating cells that are upregulating the genes that make them do their own thing,
0: downregulating the genes that make them live in their cellular society and and starting to cause trouble. And it really, it goes back to that as you're, as we keep coming back to the evolutionary perspective of saying, let's look at how cancer does evolve, you know, over time, but also within the same person of you know, what a process it is for a cell to become cancerous from that normal. I mean, what pattern of genes are we seeing that have changed to actually become cancerous? So there's sort of
1: two angles
0: on the the evolution of cancer within the body of an individual.
1: So almost like the books of two halves, the first half of the book looks at cancer as an evolutionary process within species and how that ties into like evolutionary trajectory of a species and then the book kind of changes gear and starts to look at the evolution of cancer within the body from where it arises so this idea that um you know we're familiar with the idea that like cancer starts when a cell picks up mutations it starts multiplying out of control and eventually like it picks up enough mutations a kind of genetic bingo card and then it's like a metastatic tumor right And I started to look into this. And then there's, you see the work from um, Phil Jones and Inigo Martin Carrena at the Sanger Institute, Peter Campbell, where they start to look at normal adult tissue, like the tissue that just looks normal, it looks healthy under the microscope, it's not cancerous, everything's fine. And they chop it into tiny, tiny bits and do genetic sequencing. And they find that even normal tissue is a patchwork of mutation and like in, in normal esophagus by the time you're getting to late middle age like up to half of your esophagus is full of clones groups of cells that are expanding with mutations that if we found them in a cancer we would say that is a cancer gene that is a cancer driver and that really like blew my mind because then you're like okay if loads of our normal healthy tissue is full of what we would call cancer mutations but for any individual person, you might only develop one, maybe two cancers in your entire lifetime. What is stopping those cells from growing out of control? Because if all your cells are a bit kind of sad, if they've all got various mutations and they're all expanding and, and bumping up against each other, sort of these patterns of clonal expansion in our tissues, what is the trigger that tips a cancer into, you know, Becoming really problematic. What makes a sad cell a bad cell? And it seems to be, I think that the real tipping point is chromosomal instability. So most of the, the sort of the clones that we're are expanding in our body, they're picking up individual hits in individual genes here and there all over the place. But what seems to make a, a clone of cells really go for it is when you get this large-scale chromosomal rearrangement. So um, big, you know, deletions cutting, pasting, chromosome duplications. When something's gone wrong in division, you end up with a double set of chromosomes. Um, things are getting chopped and changed around. Whole chromosomes getting shattered, stitched back together. That seems to be really potent fuel for the evolution of these, these sad cells to really become bad cells and, and start accelerating that evolutionary process towards becoming a, an aggressive and invasive tumor and then ultimately a metastatic cancer.
0: Where we have to see extreme changes of not just a few genes that have been mutated along the way, but as you said, I mean, we can see that chromosomes could be like shattered and kind of put back together in in very, very haphazardly way. And it it was so interesting as as I'm reading this book, you talk about um, a very important paper by Peter Noel called the Clonal Evolution of Tumor Cell Populations, which proposed all the ideas we've really been talking about of looking at cancer from an evolutionary perspective. And it was published 40 years ago, which when I read that, I had to stop. And I was like, wait a minute. You know, this seems to be like such a new perspective that you're offering and, and saying, let's look at cancer in a different way than we normally do. I mean, 40 years ago, I was like, why are we just starting to talk about this? I mean, why do you think that, we are just starting to talk about it and and that there are other ways of thinking about cancer that really became much more popular so you have kind of rumbled me there that this is not a new idea Um, and particularly
1: i do want to like highlight the, the work of noel but also mel Greaves at the institute of cancer research in sutton in london he's been kind of banging this drum that cancer is an evolutionary process it's rooted in our evolutionary history as a species and it evolves within the body And if you treat it, you're just applying selective pressure that if it doesn't kill it, it's going to make it worse. He's been banging this drum for years. And, you know, what it did really surprise me researching the book, seeing papers like Noel's paper, you know, back in the 70s, the idea of the cellular society really focusing on how cancers emerge out of the microenvironment. All of these are old, old papers, you know, there's, there's some really, really beautiful writing about this concept of where cancer comes from as this sort of almost dark side of development or this emergent cellular species out of the body and loads of it just i think got subsumed or superseded when we got genetic sequencing technology and could just like here's a bit of tumor let's mash it up let's sequence all the genes this is what's driving it and we've become really obsessed with the kind of the genetic shopping lists of mutations find that, develop drugs against them. And, um, and, you know, and that that sort of goes out the window a bit when you discover that loads of normal tissue is full of what you'd consider to be these cancer mutations. And it also goes out the window when you realize that all these fancy targeted therapies are not bringing the cures that we were promised. And there's been a really sort of misleading thing here is that um, there's a drug called Glebeck, which is, really famous. It's been absolutely transformative in chronic myeloid leukemia. And, um, and Gleevec is a very famous story about its discovery, and it's all written about in the book, um, The Philadelphia Chromosome, because these cancers are driven by a single genetic rearrangement. It's basically where one bit of one chromosome gets kind of cut and pasted onto another bit of another chromosome. It creates this hybrid gene that drives the cancer cells to proliferate. And so researchers discovered this connection. They discovered the, the faulty molecule that's made from this hybrid gene, and they developed a drug that specifically locks into it, stops it, and that is Clevec. And I think Clevec is probably the most successful cancer drug of all time, arguably, you know, come find me. Um, but it really misled us. It, it's transformed the outcome of chronic myeloid leukemia and a couple of other cancers where you find this change, but it really misled us on the idea that if you could just find these mutated genes, just find the right drug, then we would be able to treat cancers with the same degree of success. And that has not materialized because DBEK is it's, it's such an outlier in the, the evolutionary process. Most of the cancers we're trying to treat with these drugs are really advanced and they are really heterogeneous. There's, there's so much genetic heterogeneity in cancer when you step back and think logically, it's like, yeah, of course, if you try and treat with one drug, there's going to be cells in there that have
0: evolved resistance. And at some point, they're just going to come back. And in the book, there was a a line that I particularly um, loved because it really changes, I think, people's perspective on this. And it relates to this heterogeneity that you're talking about, that not all your cancer cells are the same. They're not necessarily clones of each other. You're right. It could be argued each person's cancer represents one or more entirely new species. And I think that just highlights exactly what you're talking about here, that it's not, I mean, Glevac was amazing and, and just the research behind it too, that they were able to come up with this magic bullet, as people call it, so quickly because of this one genetic change. But I mean, most cancer is just not that simple.
1: Yeah, and it, that was really highlighted in a, a sort of transformative paper from Charlie Swanton and his tape, published in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago. And they looked at a patient in the book, I've called them Evie, because their, their kind of name was ev 001. They were on a trial of a, a drug called Everolimus. And they took tumors from this patient and cut them into small sections and did genetic sequencing. And also the metastases, they chopped the metastases up and found distal metastases when this person had surgery. And showed the incredible extent of the heterogeneity in there and that you could draw evolutionary trees you know, in the style of Charles Darwin to demonstrate the evolutionary uh, uh, kind of roots, where the mutations have been picked up, that part of this tumour had this mutation, part of this tumour had a different mutation. And if you treated that cancer with this drug, you were only ever going to knock out a certain number of cells. And, um, And it really started to focus people's minds on the extent of heterogeneity. And Charlie and his team have done a lot of work looking at this issue of chromosomal instability, Looking at polyploidy, where you have multiple sets of chromosomes, and and the role that that plays in, in really getting cancers going, and that kind of did lead me to the the idea that you say is like, so what makes a species? So humans, if you compare humans and chimpanzees, our DNA is pretty similar at the sequence level. Our chromosomes are different. So chimpanzees, I think, have a
0: Oh God, I'm going to get this wrong. So don't quote me on this. I just, I just okay. read it in your book. So I think it, they have one extra chromosome, right? Because yeah, our so chromosome they, they... two is two of theirs together.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So they have 48 chromosomes, 24 pairs. We have 23 because our, our chromosome two is is two of the chimp ones stuck together. And you start to look at the incredible extent of chromosomal heterogeneity, like doublings, weird, weird, weird things going on in tumors. And you like, a cancer cell is chromosomally so different from a human cell and it starts to really make you think these are like species evolving within the ecology of the body and they're responding to the selective pressures that are being put on them, whether that's drugs, whether that's sort of the environment within the body, whether that's inflammation, whether that's the, the hormones that are circulating in your body, all the sorts of things that you do. Cell cancer cells are, are little species. And of going off on their own, choose your own adventure. And there is a sort of an interesting diversion, heal cells, the cells that were um taken from Henrietta Lacks, the cancer patient in the 50s, uh, very famous, that they've been written about by Rebecca Scoot in her book, The Immortal Life, of Henrietta Lacks. And someone has actually proposed that because these cells have been grown out of the lab and have evolved and changed and they are so chromosomally different from human cells, that maybe they should be called a separate species and have their own name, so sort of Helocyte on Gartleri, I think is the proposed name. And I'm, I'm not kind of sure exactly where I land on this, but it really is this idea that these cells have gone off on a on evolution in a microcosm or, or evolution in like a dumpster fire, I like to call it, like they have gone on a journey. And we have to acknowledge that and understand that and then try and use evolutionary strategies to control them better particularly for advanced cancers um, rather than just oh yeah here's a targeted therapy oh look it only kills off some of the cells and, and the cancer comes back it's like well well duh I mean what, what did you expect but this somehow seems to be a surprise
0: yeah, it's very, very interesting way of thinking about it. And I mean, we could go on and on about the, the concepts in the, this book. And it's, it's just a fantastic read. Even when I was reading, I was really reading it in your voice. And I was like, this is really like, you know, you write in a similar way of engaging people um, just in, in the way that you talk on, on podcasts and everything. So, I mean, it's just a fantastic read. And you just learn so much and you, you write it in a way of looking at it from kind of a story Um, perspective so it's not it doesn't read like a textbook for some people that um, you know sometimes uh, it's hard for them to pick up a book but it's it's fantastic and people can head over to our social media to enter our book giveaway um, and also go to rebelcellbook.com so thank you so much Kat for coming on the show I mean this is just such interesting way of thinking about cancer and I think as you said it's going to lead us to more precision medicine and looking at cancer treatment in this way so thank you so much for coming on the show it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you it's it's just been wonderful as promised you can enter to win your own copy of rebel cell by going to our twitter facebook and instagram just search dna today for further details about the giveaway learn more about the book at rebelcellbook.com and search genetics unzipped in your podcast player to hear cat show i was a guest on one of her episodes as well where she interviewed me about prenatal genetic counseling so follow all of her exciting updates on twitter at cat underscore arnie and Genetics Unzipped, don't forget to enter our giveaway. Just search DNA Today on social media and find that post where you can see Rebel Cell to enter. Learn more about the show by going to dnapodcast.com. There is more information on this episode. Every episode has a blog post at dnapodcast.com. There's also a contact form on the website if you would like to ask a question to myself, cat or another guest on the show, please email in info at dnapodcast.com. Don't forget to head over to podcastmagazine.com slash hot50 and vote for DNA Today hosted by myself, Kira Janine. We would appreciate all the votes we can get so that we can be in the top 50 podcasts for December 2020. Before signing off, I want to remind you about KET Graduate Institute's master's program in genomic data analytics. KGI is an innovative grad school that is a member of the Claremont Colleges in Southern California. Their name might sound familiar if you listen to the genetic counseling application episodes with Brenna, who's one of my friends that's a student there. In addition to genetic counseling, KGI also offers this master's degree in genomic data analytics. Students benefit from foundational coursework in human genetics, cutting edge courses in the applied life sciences, and an innovative human genomics curriculum that combines to prepare for the exciting field of genomic data analytics. Upon completion of the program, students will be able to utilize their foundation in genetics and genomics, along with a practical knowledge of data analytics to be able to translate patient sequencing data into actionable clinical recommendations, and also be able to bridge the gap between research scientists and clinical practitioners. Graduates of the program will gain the ability to translate research into precision medicine. Learn more about KGI's genomic data analytics program by visiting kgi.edu dna today. Again, that's kgi.edu slash DNA today. Dr. Kat showcased how complex cancer genetics is, so it's understandable that people are often confused about the role genetics plays in their cancer or their family member's cancer. That's where genetic counselors come in. We are trained healthcare providers in genetics to explain these concepts and help you navigate testing. The genetic counselors over at Advanced Telegenetic Counseling specialize in areas of genetics like cancer. Their team is skilled in knowing common and less common genes, think beyond BRCA 1 and 2. And these genes can predispose a person for cancer. So knowing more about these heritable variants or mutations in your genetic makeup can help you understand and manage your unique genetic risks. Their genetic counselors will also help guide you through the genetic testing decision-making process. So if you find yourself having questions about your own genetics or want to learn more about adding the expertise of ATGC certified genetic counselors to help support your own practice, reach out to the Advanced Telegenetic Counseling Team through their website at at-gc.com. Again, that's at-gc.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time to learn to discover new advances in the world of genetics. Genes of you and me, the genes you and they're all made of DNA.
1: We're all made of the same chemical DNA.